over a span of 2,000 years, 40 authors on three different continents and in three different languages penned 66 books, all of which were supernaturally inspired and intricately designed as God's revelation to man. The spoken word of God, living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, recorded and bound just for us. Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context. Hey, I'm delighted to have Gary Thomas on the broadcast. He's a longtime friend, and anytime Gary writes something, it's worth reading. Most of you are well familiar with his book, Sacred Marriage, which Cindy and I used in our marriage mentor groups for years. It's one of the standard texts. I often said, that's the book I wish I had written, but Gary beat me to it. Um, Gary, remind our, our friends who perhaps don't know your story, you had like one or two publishers reject that book, if memory serves. <laughs> I, I went through an eight-year stretch of 120 straight rejections on various books and articles. I couldn't get anything published. I mean, it it scarred me, to be honest. I mean, I, I can still feel the pain. But one to third to take off, God has been gracious. I'm now 58. I've had about 20 books published, and then I just signed up. So I've got three more with Zondervan, which will take me into my 60s. So I, I can't tell you, Michael, how overwhelmingly grateful I am that I'm getting to do this my entire adult life. It's the only life I would have wanted, and I'm just very thankful that the Lord made it happen. I think if I was a naturally gifted writer, I wouldn't have had 120 straight rejections. But I'm <laughs> glad that God eventually, um, in His grace, opened the door. You know, but it's it's a good reminder for all of us about faithfulness and persistence, and who knows how God is going to use you. I, I used to collect these quotes, and I'm sure you have them as well, but the Fred Astaire uh, guy, he watched him audition, and he says, can sing and dance a little. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> so, well, I, I like to tell young people, you know, and then that was sort of your thing, being uh, former president at Moody, just that just because God calls you doesn't mean he makes it easy. And it Amen. might break your heart. And I'm afraid too many Christians give up thinking that God has closed the door. When uh, I think if you believe God has called you, you've got to sort of be willing to put your shoulder into that door and keep pushing until until it gives. And and there's a tenacity of faith that you, you look at a Olympian and you wonder. I bet there were yeah. years when the parents were just pounding that boy or girl to keep on practicing and the, the child was tired of it and... That's the difference between, you know, an Olympian or a Tiger Woods or a Serena or Venus Williams and someone else. And I don't know the fulcrum there. But anyway, all that to say, we digress. Uh, it's so great to have you on the program, and it's just a delight to see how God uses you. And we just love your stuff, so thanks for your faithfulness and your uh, persistence. So Thank you. We're going to jump in. Um, those who are listening, of course, know our series, The Big Book, Cover to Cover, but um when you drop this new book, When to Walk Away, and with some emphasis on Nehemiah, my executive producer, Hannah Seymour, who is also my firstborn daughter, says, Dad, we got to get Gary and talk to him about uh, this book. So, again, thanks for being with us. Let's jump in. So this new book, When to Walk Away, uh, dealing with toxic relationships. First of all, 
let's take a pause for those who might cringe when we use the word toxic because it can be overused, right? Yes, absolutely. So, so help us out a little bit on how your lanes for defining that. Yeah. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not even a counselor. So I'm really writing from the perspective of a pastor and someone who's worked in spiritual direction. This is all about not letting toxic people get in the way of who God called us to be and doing the ministry that God has called us to do. And so it really is a ministry book, and I can't wait till I get past defining toxic people in earlier chapters, giving the example of Jesus who walked away, uh, so that I can get back to that. It's, there's not enough time chapters where we talk about going on the spiritual offense. I think what it does point us toward, though, is that as Christians, we often define faithfulness in pietistic terms, i.e. avoiding sinful acts. Jesus defines faithfulness as being fruitful, doing good works, fulfilling the ministry that God has called us to do. He pled with his disciples, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send more workers. And, and you see the passion behind his word saying, this is the most important work that's ever been done, and there aren't enough of us. So pray for more workers. And it stands to reason if there aren't enough of us, we should all want to make the best use of our time. And then he says in John 15, 8, by this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So when I take Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God, and Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 15, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That's the context out of which we developed a strategy of walking away from toxic people. It's not for psychological health or sanity, not that I have a problem with that. This is really about being effective in ministry and service to the Lord. So let's, uh, I'm going to differentiate and, and push back if you disagree, but I find it striking in the Gospels where Jesus, the only people he's really hard on are the legalists, the religiosity, the scribes and Pharisees who are, uh, you know, using their, ingratiating themselves with their long tassels and, and braids and the appearance of righteousness over against the sinner the publican, the, the, the person who re- recognizes that he's broken. Uh, and it seems his hardest words are for the self-righteous, for the legalists. And uh, he had no no problem uh, confronting them, tossing tables, as it were. But he had a tender spot for the sinner, the broken, even a Nicodemus who kind of you know walks yeah. between yeah. two lanes. Uh, and, of course, he knew the hearts of all men. So, so that just sort of the clarifying point. There were times when Christ said, no. This, you know, this is wrong. Uh, the brood of vipers, I mean, the woes, those are chilling for that audience. Yeah. When it came to calling people out and using forceful language, I mean, saying don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine in Matthew 7, 6. I mean, the first century, when Jesus is talking about dogs in Jewish quarters, you know this, Jews didn't keep dogs as pets. He's not talking about fluffy or spots. <laughs> He's talking about these mongrel, vile animals. Um, Egyptians and Romans kept dogs, not not Jews. So you can't make that polite. But what I noticed also, Michael, and this is where I was blind for many years, and what really surprised me uh, about this book was that while Jesus spoke forcefully against the religious hypocrites and bigots, he also acted strategically against the hurting and those he loved. Uh, The rich young ruler, I don't believe, was a toxic person. In fact, in one of the Gospels, it says that Jesus loved him. 
not in all the accounts, but in one of them. Jesus really cared for this guy, but he said to him, you know, this is what you have to do to be perfect. Scripture tells he went away very sad because he was very rich, which I just love that phrase. I mean, because young people today don't think you put you're very sad because you're very rich. I think it's the opposite. But that's first century teaching. But then Jesus let him walk away. And here's the thing. Jesus didn't chase after him. He loved him. He spoke the truth. And when the guy wouldn't receive it, Jesus turned to his disciples, the reliable people, and said, let me explain to you why it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. So his strategy was, even if somebody's not toxic or a hypocrite, if they're not going to accept what I have to say, I'm going to spend my time with the people who will. I want to be fruitful. And so in Matthew 8, he's in a village. It's not a group of uh, religious leaders. It's just regular people. He heals a guy from demons. The demons go into the pigs. The pigs run off the cliff. And now the people say to Jesus in Matthew 8, 34, would you leave? In fact, Matthew says they pleaded with him, just go. The very next verse is Matthew 9, 1, where it says Jesus got into a boat and was sailed to his own town. He didn't walk away, but he sailed away. So when somebody said, Jesus, we don't want what you have here, Jesus didn't try to explain away why he let the demons come out, why he let him go into the pigs, why what he was offering was better than pork chops and bacon. He basically just said, okay, and he left. And that opened up my eyes that Jesus was not moved by attacks. He wasn't moved by flattery. He wasn't moved by neediness. He lived with this intense focus to do what he tells us to do, seek first the kingdom of God. And sometimes people would beg him to stay, and Jesus says, no, I've got other villages I have to go. Sometimes they would beg him to leave, and he would go. And I think I just missed that fruitfulness as an aspect of faithfulness before God. But here's where my eyes were opened. I always thought that our first call was to be the martyr, uh, turn the other cheek and all that. But then where I was shocked was how many times Paul walked away, how many cities where people wanted to abuse Paul. There were half a dozen cities where Paul got out of there as soon as they became abusive. There were several times where Jesus walked away when people wanted to hurt him or take, picked up stones and says he slipped through the crowds. So Jesus did let himself be martyred once. Paul let himself be martyred, and he let himself be beaten. But there are many times in both Paul and Jesus' life where they said, not today. You don't get to do that to me today. So I found in general, for most of us, being frustrated is just part of ministry. But when somebody is abusing us to the point where we're losing our joy, and some might say, well, that seems selfish, except the Bible says the joy of the Lord is our strength. So if they're so weakening me, I have nothing to give to others. If they're playing with my sanity, toxic people can be masters at gaslighting, which is making you feel like you're crazy for speaking the truth. So now I have no self-confidence. I have nothing to share with God's people. Well, that's undercutting what I'm doing. And when they're basically making me haunted by the relationships, I can't be there with my healthy relationships. I can't get it out of my mind. I'm, I'm having those fantasy fights at that point. I think it's best to walk away. An analogy that's been helpful for me is that of a lifeguard. A lifeguard is a noble profession. You're there to save people. But one of the first things they teach you in lifeguard training is self-defense. Because when people are drowning, sometimes inadvertently, they'll bring you down with them. They're panicking. And, and you have to learn how to protect yourself because if you let them drown you, then nobody gets saved, and all the people that you might save in the future won't be saved. 
So I've sort of set a stronger line unless I just have this real sense that this is one of those times where we, we undergo persecution for the sake of the kingdom. In most cases with toxic people, I'm, I'm thinking if this is totally making me unavailable to do the work that God has called me to do, making me feel like I have nothing to give, if it's starting to abuse me spiritually, emotionally, or physically, in most cases I think it's best to walk away. It's what Jesus did. It's what Paul did. Three times in our New Testament, we have this character named Demas who's mentioned, yes. and I'd love to write a book called The Way of Demas, but uh, we read about him in, in Colossians 4, uh, Luke, the beloved physician, sends his greeting, and also Demas. We read about him in Philemon 24, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers, soon Aragon, fellow workers, and then 2 Timothy 4.10, later in time, for Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And and so you get this picture. This guy was a disciple. He was a fellow worker. And at some point, he left. And uh, so I'm gathering from what you're saying. There's a time you let people walk away. And there's a time, perhaps, we have to say this is this is too much. It's, it's too consuming. There's no end to this. And uh, it's healthier to walk away. Yeah. Well, it's certainly what Richard Baxter recommended to younger pastors, and he quoted Paul, who said, warn a divisive person once, yeah. give him a second chance, third time you're done. And, and Baxter said, put your time and effort basically into the people the toxic person is infecting, rather than trying to be the superhero that can help the infector. Uh, and, and I think that's where often in ministry we, we do the opposite. We're more concerned about being the one that can break through to this toxic person and Michael, this is a warning to those who are leading in ministry or even businesses. I found when leaders don't deal with toxic people, ultimately the toxic people murder their jobs because it gets so bad. The leader ends up having to take responsibility, but half the church is gone or half the staff has quit or things have just gotten so chaotic that people start saying to the leader, how could you let this happen? And it wasn't that the, tox- the leader was toxic, it was that they didn't deal with the toxic person. And I think that's what Paul was saying, and it's what um, Richard Baxter, the great Puritan writer, was saying. is look, you, you, you can warn them, we can reach out, but there has to be a time when we apply discernment and say, we're done with you. We're not welcoming what you're trying to sell here. The key for me, and, and this so affects the way I talk about ministry, the way I talk about marriage, and everything. And I just didn't realize this before. I don't think I took evil seriously enough, and I think I was naive. It's when I realized that some men, and you could use women, I'll just use men as an example here, would find a healthy, mutually encouraging, and mutually pleasurable marriage to be boring. They live for drama. A church united around a mission, seeking to reach the lost, encourage the faithful, worship God, that's boring to a toxic person. They live for intrigue. They like to turn people against each other. An office environment that's peaceful so that we can get our work done drives them crazy. They, they want to be gossiping. They want to be backbiting. They want to bring uh, division against the leadership. And it was only then that I realized, okay, uh, I, I'm acting as if everybody isn't acting in good faith. And the Bible gives us many examples and many teachings where that's not always the case. A peaceful marriage a united church, a productive office, that's boring to a toxic person. And so we're playing different games. I think, don't you want what we want? And the answer is no. 
they live to destroy. And that's where we need to be on guard and say, well, we're not going to put up with that here. And if the leader doesn't, usually one of the casualties is their own job. I remember uh, many years ago uh, confronting a person in a church I served, and he, he was, um, let's just say he, he was the divisive and factious individual, but 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 gentle about it. He wasn't like angry and yelling and screaming. He was, you know, but he would... He had this very passive-aggressive way, and this went on for years. And I finally, you know, grabbed the bull by the horns and dealt with it. And it was striking uh, the bell curve of responses from, you know, how dare you and how unchristlike that was to, we should have done this years ago. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, I just got a letter from, is that a church where they had that same situation where they just lost dozens of members until they realized, okay, we have to deal with it. And they realized... Well, why didn't we do this before? And here's the answer, Michael. I found toxic people are better at being toxic than we are dealing with them. We mm-hmm. want to think the best of people. We we don't want to limit God's power to reach somebody and bring real transformation because we've seen him do that. But there's something different about toxic people where they would resent it. And that something different is a pride that protects their toxicity. I had... Uh, adult tooth taken out a couple months ago, which is really painful when you're an adult, but I had a root canal that had gone bad. And when you have that happen as an adult, it feels like they're pulling the tooth out of your eye socket. Mm. I mean, it's like he's pulling your jaw out. And if I would have woken up and somebody had done that to me, I would have been screaming. I would have been calling the police. I'd be thinking, I want that person to go to jail, but I paid him $900 to do that to me. And the reason is I had seen the x-rays. I believed I had an infection. And the doctor said, Gary, travel a lot. It could erupt any time. We really need to take this out. I'm like, yeah, I, I want it out. If I didn't think I have an infection, I would resent it. Knowing I had an infection, I would. And that's what it's like with a toxic person. If they don't think they're toxic, if they think everybody else is always a problem, and you try to provide compassionate, relevant, even gentle spiritual surgery – They'll scream, they'll holler, they'll think you're an enemy because they don't see an infection and they resent the fact that you would imply there's an infection and they will go to war even though you're acting with love and the best of intentions. Paul writes in Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends yes. on you, yes. be at peace with all men. And I think we've missed that if possible. There, there is a, a sin condition some relationships are just going to be contentious and difficult, and uh, this isn't a marriage we're talking about. This isn't, you know, this is a, a person in leadership or we're laboring with, or even in, in an employment situation, one person that soils the whole thing. Yeah. This has been a hard truth for me. Even John, the apostle of love, lived by what you just said. He mentions one person in one of his epistles saying, avoid him, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set him straight. But there was another guy named Serenthus that Polycarp, who of course was discipled by John, said that one time John was in one of the bathhouses and Serenthus walked in and John ran out the other door saying, I'm not even going to be seen with this man. And, and no Christian epistles capture love so compellingly, so persuadingly. I mean, just you, you want to love, and he was the person who mastered love, and this is what it is to be a Christian. And yet even he recognized there are certain toxic individuals where you say, no, no. Uh, to be soft, to be accommodating, to pretend they're healthy, that's not good. And he wanted the whole church to know. When I'm telling you to love, I'm also telling you run out when this guy enters the bathhouse. 
You uh, you appeal to some passages and stories in Nehemiah to illustrate this. Yes. Well, Nehemiah is a great book. It really is a case study for how to handle toxic individuals. I think most of your listeners would know, just in case if you don't, he was brought in after Ezra had rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah believed that God wanted him to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem about 600 years before Christ was born. And uh, it became very, well, contentious. And there were individuals. Some at first talked about they were his friends, and we want you to meet with us. He says, no. He, he understood their motives. I don't have time to do that. Then they became threatening. Well, you know what? If you don't meet with us, we're going to tell the king what you're doing. We know that you just want to make yourself a king. So now they're threatening him, and, and then he didn't give in to that. And then they bring in the religious authorities. They talk about Shemaiah and, and Noah, who's a prophet. Shemaiah was a religious name, so he, he had to do something with the religious community. They, they tried to bring in the secular authorities, they tried to bring in the religious authorities. They pretended to be a friend. And then they said, you know, you know what? somebody's trying to hurt you. You need to come meet with us so that we can protect you. He says, no, 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 you're actually trying to hurt me. They, they tried every approach imaginable. And Nehemiah was dogged. He said, no, I'm going to get this done. He, he didn't play their game. And what was so astonishing, he got it done in just a little over 50 days. And you ask yourself, if, if this could be accomplished in 50-some days, why didn't they do this much sooner? And the answer is it took a leader who understood not giving in to toxic people to be a key to being focused, who, who could stand up to them to get it done. Because when you're not distracted by toxic people, it's amazing how much more energy you have, how you can bring people together. You don't have somebody showing division, not letting fear get in the way but just getting the task done. And for me, the last verse in Nehemiah has become a life verse mm. when he says, remember me with favor, my God. And after you read the whole book, you understand how important that is because he's saying they lied about me. They misrepresented me. They questioned my motives. This group said I was acting with insurrection. He goes, but God, you know why I did what I did. So I hope that you'll remember me with favor. And life changed for me, Michael, when I realized people will speak ill of me. People will question my motives. People will challenge me. In the end, what really matters is I can say, God, I hope you remember me with favor. I live to please you. Um, it was so hard for me to learn how to be hated, to learn to be willing to let others speak ill of me. But if anyone is going to do the work of the Lord, they're going to be hated by the world. Jesus was. He said his disciples will be as well. It's the price we pay to please God. You know, interesting, you, you talk about remember me for good. Psalm 90 is one of my favorite uh, go-tos, and I find it striking. Here Moses, in nearing death, let's, let's say within a year or two of his death, uh, the last two phrases about, you know, give me meaning, the work of my hands. You know, did, did it count? Did it matter? And you talk about a yeah. guy who dealt with opposition and contention and rebellion, and if you want to use our your language, toxicity. Uh, you know, all all his whole life, and in the end, he is deprived of seeing the land except from a distance. And uh, you know, we don't we don't know for sure yeah. the timestamp on that psalm, but I love the the human aspect. You know, did it matter, Lord? Did it matter? I, I worked so hard, and this is a human condition. I, every every one of us has that. You know, did my life matter? Because there's always a contingent of people that are going to hate you. Yeah. Well, and that's why 
the words of David, the words of Nehemiah are so key because you can be an incredible spouse and have a spouse who never appreciates you. I've seen it. Some, they've, they've taken an incredible spouse for granted. Uh, you can serve faithfully in a church that for whatever reason, demographics or whatnot, it doesn't take off. You don't get the approbation from the world. You don't get the applause. Uh, you can be faithful in business and maybe politically correct reasons you get passed over, somebody else gets the promotion or whatnot. But God doesn't miss any of that. And God promises rewards. And in the book of Hebrews even says that that it's part of being honoring God to believe that he rewards those who faithfully serve him. And Jesus uses heavenly rewards to motivate us in the spiritual disciplines, to pray, uh, to give, to fast, all of those things that let it be done in secret your heavenly father will reward you. So it really connects with what Nehemiah says, remember me with favor, my God. If that becomes our motivation, we know we may not receive it right away, and we may not receive it in this world, but it is as certain as it can be. I love one of the Christian classics says that the promise of God is better than possession in the world. Mm. Because God is so certain, and it's going to be eternal in this world. Possession in this world is temporary. And and we think of that as the reverse. But the promise of God is so certain, and it's so eternal. It's better to have his promise than possession in this world. Let's get to the nitty-gritty. You've written books on sacred marriage, and perhaps one of the things people know you best for is in working with marriages, uh, husbands and wives and divorce. Not to open a too big a can of worms, but is there a toxic marriage? There is. And, you know, because of what you said, when I began to write the chapter on toxic marriages, I began it with, if this is the first chapter you turn to, please go back. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it takes me the entire book to sort of lay out the conclusions I come to. But it was eye-opening for me. Michael, when I realize that sometimes some people, and I don't think it's a lot, but there are some evil people who want to preserve the platform of marriage to preserve the platform of abuse. And they will play naive pastors. They will play naive friends. They will play naive counselors. And they know how to use religious language, and they know how to use tears. But the reality is that they get a sick satisfaction out of being toxic to someone, out of abusing someone, out of slowly destroying someone. And marriage gives us such a platform for intimacy, encouragement, mutual work for the gospel. It does so many good things, but that same platform gives a unique empowerment to evil if somebody is married to a toxic person. And so I lay out, what does that mean? What's the response? We don't want to respond too quickly this way, but I do think we have to open up our eyes. And part of the chapters that lay up to that conclusion is looking at the skeleton of Scripture. The body, the normal human body, has over 200 bones. But if you remove just one of them, like the hip bone, you're in real trouble. I mean, you're not going to function as a normal human, even though you'd still have over 200 bones left. And Scripture's skeleton, this isn't the full skeleton, but it's key, creation, fall, and redemption. Fall is one of those key bones. If we forget about the fall, that the fall has hit every good institution of God. The fall infects government. The fall infects the church. The fall infects marriage. God created the church. He created the government. He created marriage. But if we forget that the fall can infect it, 
and we don't see ourselves as needing to resist evil and not give a platform to evil. We can leave people in a situation where they're terrorized by evil, and I think that grieves the heart of God. Um, God valued the Sabbath so greatly that when somebody disobeyed it in the Old Testament, there was capital punishment. It was not a insignificant thing to him. And yet in the New Testament, when the Sabbath was used to hurt people, Jesus said, hey, the Sabbath was created for man, not man for the Sabbath. God created marriage. He designed marriage to be a fruitful thing. But I believe when you look at the full counsel of Jesus, we go through many passages, there can be a time when we realize somebody can abuse marriage to such a way where we have to resist evil, even if that means uh, pulling them out of a marriage. Uh, it's a terrible thing to remove a child from the parent's home. Parental authority is given by God, but if parents are using uh, that child, abusing that child, I should say, terrorizing that child, it's not wrong to remove that child from the parents. We're told to honor the government, and yet there are passages in the New Testament where we're told, and Peter and Paul said, that we, we're going to obey God, not, not the government. So we just get this binary thing, always obey the government, always respect parental authority, always uphold the marriage vows. And we have to recognize that evil infects all of those, and while we want to hold people to the truth, that God uses even a difficult marriage, that no marriage is easy. Not being glib about it and encouraging each other and, and, and growing, but we also have to recognize that sometimes, in some cases of situations of toxicity, uh, I think we have to resist evil, even if that means helping somebody end their marriage. Let me ratchet back a notch and ask you, so, okay, the marriage is in, in peril one of the parties is really abusive emotionally, physically. They've withdrawn. Uh, let's say we can label them toxic. Before we get there, give me some lane lines to know when, okay, I need to work through this a little bit more before I just jettison. Yeah. Because it's become so easy now for uh, you know us to divorce and, uh, and everybody will support it. And yet, how, how do I, you know, before I jump there? Well, one of the things I stress in the book is that divorce isn't the first question. The first concern is safety. I mean, are you safe? Are you feel okay? Because you, you can deal with the level, is this something that can be addressed? Is this uh, from a herd? Is this toxic intent or whatnot? But you want – I think the church always has to take care. Taking care of the flock means making sure the flock is safe. Now, let me stress to the listeners that if you're dealing with a toxic person who could become violent, you want to deal with a trained professional who knows how to affect a safe separation. Because if you even talk about separation, when someone's truly toxic that enjoys controlling and enjoys attacking someone, thinking that they have lost that platform could make them escalate their level of opposition, which could even become violent. So. This isn't for amateurs, and there, there, there are times we have to recognize, look, I'll pray for somebody if they have a headache. If it's a brain tumor, I send them to a neurologist. I'm not trained to deal with that. And I think even as pastors and as friends, we have to have situations where, okay, this is where you need somebody who's dealt with this, who really knows how to help you. The questions I'm asking, so first, it's just about getting them safe. Don't worry about divorce. That, can, that confuses things. You, you can deal with that months later. But is this person destroying them? And, and I think we have to hold 
ministry? Is it, is it impossible for them to ministry? Uh, is their sense of self-esteem being completely crushed? Are they in harm's way? Are they being destroyed? Uh, that's the case where I'm really concerned. God is a God of life. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And he said, Satan comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. So I'm looking at what's going on uh, in this relationship. So what's the appropriate response? Are we resisting evil here? Are they using marriage as a platform for evil, or is this a marriage that can be saved? Uh, And the tough thing for me, and, and this is just the reality. In fact, before the book came out, I was at Focus on the Family, talking to some of the people in the magazine, and I said, I know that when to walk away will be abused. I know that some people will use the word toxic too easily to get out of a frustrating or disappointing marriage. Mm -hmm. It breaks my heart. But you know what? My book, Sacred Marriage, has been abused. When I said, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? And some have used that to keep people in abusive and dangerous marriages. And I was really encouraged. Sheila's one of those workers at Focus. She said, Gary, the Bible's misapplied every day. (laughs) I thought, well, okay, there you go. The one perfect book. Uh, can, can be mishandled. That's where I just think we have to be wise in application. Go with good hearts that want to please the Lord. Uh, we, we want every person to flourish. But here's a challenge for me. There's a passage in the book of Luke when Jesus says, no one who is left, parents, children, wife, and others, for my sake in the gospel will fail to receive much more in life and in the next life, eternal life. So Jesus opens up the door that in some cases, for the sake of ministry, someone may have to leave their spouse. I don't know that the contemporary evangelical church has come up with that, but that's the direct words of Jesus. I have given my life to hold marriages together. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm so grateful. It's a rare marriage conference for me when somebody doesn't come up and say, we're married today because we work through sacred marriage. When two people give themselves to the Lord, I've seen him do miraculous works. I believe two people submitted to God can heal their marriage. But I also have to have my eyes open to those few toxic individuals where they're going to terrorize somebody and perhaps destroy somebody. And that's when we need to be uh, as wise as serpents, even when we seek to be as innocent as doves. You know, one of the challenges with uh, modern technology, modern thinking, you know, uh, we, we can talk about narcissism and some of the things we've learned. But I've been I've been studying Luther this past year, and one of the lecturers, a guy named Philip Carey, and he brings out an interesting thing that I hadn't thought of contextually is that during the Reformation, during Luther's time, and you're you're the expert in these in these realms, uh, life expectancy was much shorter. And yes. be- because yep. people were, you know, infant mortality was very high. Infections killed people. If you lived to be 45, yep. you were an old person. And, and so the idea of life and death was much more on people's minds. And ergo, uh, where am I going to live for eternity? What happens when I die was a much more uh, important conversation. Today, uh, with longevity, with health, with uh, a me-first society, with all our conveniences, with technology leaps and bounds making our life so easy, we've become a little more inoculated, and it's a lot more about me and my and yeah. I and what I want as opposed to uh, what you're, you've said a couple times now, living for an eternal truth versus a present reality. Yeah. John Calvin had a great marriage 
he was married for a decade. And that wasn't that uncommon. A lot of those Reformed writers, they just didn't know a marriage of 35, 50 years would almost be um, unheard of. And, and so I do think it skewed the way. But here's the thing. As a Christian, as one who's devoted his life to – because I believe the call of God on my life is to help bring spiritual life into marriages, I still have to love Jesus more than I love marriage. And I have to love Jesus more than I love my marriage. Now, in my case, I'm married to a wonderful, godly woman. Death will separate us. Nothing else will. Um, that will be by God. So I'm not trying to do any personal thing here. But the reason our marriage is rich is because we've chosen to love Jesus more than we'll love our marriage. And so that's where I think the attitude has to be that marriage is a good thing. It's not the ultimate thing, and it's not even the eternal thing. And that's why you can put up with a disappointing marriage. Mm. God didn't create marriage to make earth feel like heaven. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's incredible. Sometimes it's amazing. And some couples can have many, many years of happiness. But those many, many years of happiness, if they blind us to spiritual mission, if they blind us to eternal purposes, can actually work against our ultimate eternal happiness. Uh, and, and that's where I just think we have to be careful. Marriage is so good. Marriage vows are very serious, and we should be willing to put up with the difficult or even disappointing marriage for the sake of the gospel. I can't preach a gospel of reconciliation if I can't be reconciled to my spouse who wants to be reconciled. Um, on the other hand, marriage isn't the ultimate good. Jesus made it clear that commitment to his blood overcomes commitment to family blood even the bonds of marriage. Okay, let's let's talk about this idea of growing in inner strength and investing in reliable people because you, you've led us down a little bit of a, it is a form of love. Um, uh, our friend Rosaria Butterfield says, it's not yeah. loving to call a person living in sin not to repent. You know, if you love right. someone, you're going to call him or her to repent. You yeah. can't just, you know, Say, oh, I'm going to be tolerant and diverse and loving. So, so how do we then turn this to say, I got to choose the right people, uh, so that I, those investments are good. Yeah, humility and obedience. Humility and obedience. When Jesus is Matthew six thirty three, seek first the kingdom of God. His his strategy is there. What we call the Great Commission in Matthew twenty eight. Um, make disciples of all nations, and then you know what he says next teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. So discipling isn't to tell people you're loved, you're okay with God. I mean, there's, there's a part of that. But basically, we're to teach people to obey what Jesus said. And Paul does the same thing, Second Corinthians 5.15, we already talked about that. He died for all that those who live no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. And then Paul's great commission is Second Timothy 2.2, whatever you've heard me say in presence of others, Entrust to reliable people who will be qualified to teach others. So the key is humility, people who are willing to be taught, and obedience, people who are committed to obeying what they've heard. And so if somebody is hard-hearted, and like the rich young ruler, uh, he, he wasn't willing to obey what Jesus was saying. And Jesus said, okay, he's not one of the ones I'm going to invest my time in. Um, and that's sounds like a tough thing to do, but sometimes that's the most loving thing you can do. I think we cheapen the gospel when we make it seem as if our confidence in, in the message of Christ is dependent on somebody agreeing with us. 
when people see that we are willing to give our lives to something, they're like, what is it? What? Why does this drive you so much? Why is this? Why are you so impassioned about this? And, and by letting them go, it might be the best way to get them to think back at a different time when God has prepared them that, oh, there might be something to this truth. So basically, the reliable people I'm looking for are people of humility and people of obedience. And, and let me stress, that's what I seek to be. I want to be humble. I want to be open to correction by others, including correction by my wife. And I want to stress obedience. As much as I love the fact that I'm saved by grace through faith, I know that sin isn't just corrupt, it's corrupting. You talked about Demas, who went astray. We seem to be living in an age of apostasy, some real high-profile people that you know, seem to have powerful ministries and walks with God going away. Well, I think when we, start, when we step outside of obedience— Sin isn't just corrupt, it's corrupting. It closes off our heart. We become, I don't mean to say this in a, in a critical, provocative way, but we become spiritually stupid. We start to think that, that God's ways aren't there, that there's something malicious behind God's laws. Instead of God speaking every command out of love and mercy and kindness and how beautiful they are, we start to see them as restrictive, maybe even cruel and unloving. And so we, we lose all spiritual discernment. We're not any good to anyone else, and we're not any good to ourselves. One final thought as you're, as you're talking about this. I know there's a hundred, but what do you want to leave our folks with when, when you think about when to walk away? And um, this, is, this is the bottom line, guys. Yeah. I want people who read When to Walk Away to know that this is the most flourishing life I can live. My wife had been trying to get me to go on an elimination diet for for years. If people don't know, elimination diets are where you, you take blood tests and you figure out what foods might be making you sick. They may not be putting you in the hospital, but they zap you of energy. They maybe give you a headache. They make you thinking foggy. And the idea is you eliminate these foods that are a little bit toxic to you. You have more zest. You have more health. You're more engaged, more energy. You get more done. I think the same thing is true of relationships. If you want a flourishing life, you want to be a person of peace and joy and enthusiasm and confidence because those are the people God uses to reach others, to attract others, to influence the world, to grow his kingdom. And so if there are people that are making me sick so that I feel like I've got nothing to give, destroying my joy so I have no strength, destroying my peace, I'm worried about my own security rather than helping others, and destroying my sense of sanity. Do I even know what I believe? Well, I've got to remove those toxic people from my life so that I can have a flourishing life, not for my own comfort and enjoyment, but for service to the kingdom. It's the life God created us to live. It's the life that's most fulfilling and satisfying. And it's a life at the end that will be with fewer regrets. When I look back, all the time I've spent on toxic people hasn't helped a single toxic person, but it's distracted me from many healthy relationships and productive discipling relationships. And I've just decided I'm, I'm done with that. I want to walk in the footsteps of Jesus and learn when to walk away. Gary Thomas, author of the newest book of his, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People, Zondervan Publications. You can find out more about how to order it in the show notes. Gary, thanks. It's always a delight and a treat to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your willingness to be on In Context. Thank you, Michael. It's always a joy to talk with you. 
Michael Easley in Context is fully funded from donations by our listeners. If you're a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation on our website? You can find us on michaelincontext.com. In Context is engineered by Chad Cates, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho, Chad Cates, and Blair Masters.